Innovation can be very marginal um, and, and just things we discover through trial and error and often through failing, and that's perfectly okay. Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. We can thank philanthropy and nonprofits for breakthroughs like hospice care, public libraries, and the discovery of insulin to treat diabetes. Yet, finding solutions to social problems and measuring impact are often very difficult. Good intentions don't automatically translate to impact. So why do some nonprofits punch above their weight while others misfire? The most successful nonprofits are innovative, which is, in short, about finding new, surprising ways to get results and value. It involves creativity, originality, and some risk-taking. It involves building innovative practices into our workplace DNA, such as pilots and small experiments. Through stories of social entrepreneurs and nonprofit powerhouses like Mayo Clinic, the American Civil Rights Movement, Fred Rogers' nonprofit production company, Rhinos Without Borders, and many others, there are practical lessons that can be applied at any nonprofit organization. At the same time, we also shouldn't shy away from cautionary tales of what not to do. In this episode, Dan Churchwell, Acton's Director of Programs and Education, talks with Leah Kroll, Senior Director of Strategy and Innovation at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and author of the book, Innovation for Social Change, How Wildly Successful Nonprofits Inspire and Deliver Results About What Makes for a Successful Nonprofit Enterprise. Leah Kroll is an expert facilitator and author who helps nonprofits doing the hard work of building civil society to innovate and be more effective. She writes about her work in her book, Innovation for Social Change, How Wildly Successful Nonprofits Inspire and Deliver Results. Kroll is the Senior Director of Strategy and Innovation at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, the home of heterodox thinkers and economists who work to discover what aspects of institutions and culture help societies prosper. She is a sought-after speaker at nonprofit industry events, writes frequently about her research, offers tailored consulting to nonprofit teams, and provides coaching to social entrepreneurs across the country. She has a passion for helping organizations achieve their missions and is an active volunteer in her community and parish. She holds a Master's of Arts in Public Policy from Duquesne University and is a returned Peace Corps volunteer. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Well, Leah, welcome to the Acton Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Absolutely. Uh, you have such a wonderful book, um, and these ideas are so needed in our in our culture today and in, in what we're uh, facing, and nonprofits are becoming more and more popular as we speak. 
Um, and, and I think before we even get into the specifics of the book, you have worked with many nonprofit institutions and organizations throughout your career. I mean, c- can you give our audience an idea about how nonprofits as we even know them came about in the first place? I love that question. Um, I, I didn't start out with that question as I was researching the book. I was really just looking more for like nonprofit case studies of success and failure. But that question just kept popping up in the back of my mind. And I wondered, well, how how did nonprofits as we know them come about? And um, eventually I stumbled onto the work of a historian at Case Western uh, University. His name's David Hammock. And he has written a number of books on the history of civil society and philanthropy. Um, but yeah, I was kind of, I was just so curious because all I could, as I was searching my memory banks, I could think of like Victorian movies where people gave alms and at that, you know, I was just right. wondering like, what are the actual facts of where nonprofits came about? So I'll share what I learned from uh, David Hammock's research. Um, so most of your listeners will probably be familiar with Tocqueville's famous book, Democracy in America, which he wrote in the 1830s. Um, Tocqueville was a French aristocrat who famously visited America and then wrote very compellingly yeah, about what he saw. And so um, at that time, America was still a pretty young country. And so what Tocqueville observed and wrote in his book was that in comparison to Europe, associations in the United States were very free and they were far more decentralized, voluntary, and bottom-up compared to what he had seen in Europe. And he was amazed by this. And he wrote, I'm going to quote him here. He wrote, we have hardly ever seen anything of the kind. And then Tocqueville explained um, that in England, it was the landed aristocrat who was the primary organizer for social or public concerns. And so those who were dependent upon the aristocrat were subservient to the execution of his designs. So in other words, if you weren't a wealthy aristocrat, you or your family might be voluntold to build the new almshouse or the orphanage. And so back in Europe, this idea of a nonprofit getting a legal charter to work on a particular mission outside of the control of the church or the feudal lords was considered really radical, um, that it would be too dangerous to give people that kind of power or freedom. So the American Revolution, and what I learned after reading Hammock's work was that it was the American Revolution and the separation of church and state that was really a major turning point in how civil society as we know it today became organized. So what Tocqueville was kind of blown away by and, and what was happening was that there were far more people than ever before were free to address social needs and issues and the ways that they thought best. So for the first time, in history, citizens, or at least some citizens, maybe white male citizens, were free to donate, not donate, participate, or not participate in associations that they thought deserved their time and money. And there could now be competition amongst nonprofits, which gets to the theme of my book. Um, And so for nonprofits to compete for funding or donor intention, they needed to be effective and innovative, Mm -hmm. um, which is what I was writing about. But um, I thought what was interesting in Hammock's writing, too, as we get a little further into history, um, is that, of course, philanthropy in the U.S. is is not all sunshine and roses. Um, it has not always been on the side of freedom. Um, for example, there were major grant-making foundations in the U.S. that did not provide any grants or support to, say, the women's suffrage movement or the American civil rights movement. Um, so instead, they had to kind of scrape together, you know, and, and really raise money from the grassroots side of things. Um, because these groups were seeking social change, which was kind of radical, yeah. and changing, challenging the status quo. So, um, you know, philanthropy there be, while, you know, as you look at the story, like at the time of the American Revolution, how we made these huge inroads into freedom, um, you know, philanthropy has not always been on the right side of of history. Mm -hmm. 
So what we find there is that the birth of nonprofits is tied to this larger story of freedom, democracy, and social change, that nonprofits can be actually pretty radical and revolutionary. And I find that really interesting. So that that did not make it into my book that um, because uh, the book is really more focused on the practical side, you know, meant for busy nonprofit practitioners. But I think that story needs to be unpacked further right. and oh, told because it's really I didn't know you know yeah. so it was really interesting learning about that yeah nonprofits are powerful I mean and, and you see you know you, you're talking about the bad side I mean the Rockefeller Foundation and others um, I mean they helped fund the eugenics movement and the eugenics movement gravitated over to Germany and you know wow. and it, yeah. there's there's some really bad things but there's also fantastic really interesting themes um, and that maybe leads leads to a next question. But like when you talk about this idea of public good or civic society, like, like how do we think about that now, or, or how how to have people thought about this idea? Of what what is the public good? Yeah. Um... Yeah, sometimes we hear these terms like there's nonprofit, there's civil society. I've also heard it called the third sector. And you think about well, what is the role of nonprofit of the nonprofit? So since I work at an economic research center, the economists I work with would bring up this distinction between the types of things made in the for-profit world. And you think of things that are sold like an iPad or a service, like getting your car washed. And then there's this concept called public goods or the commons. And these are these are economic terms, but um what they mean by that is things that aren't easily sold in distinct units. So think of something like pollution or a lighthouse or national security. Um, economists would call them non-excludable and non-rivalrous. So that's mm. a lot of sorry for all the big words. Sure. Um, but this is where civil society comes in. And those things that are just kind of like not like an iPad, right? They're harder. You can't really package them. And so when you think of civil society or um, public goods, how would you go about solving for something like that? And so these needs might be met by family, by friends, by community. It doesn't have to be always met by an organization. Um, to me, civil society might include the hard work of parents raising their children or taking care of an aging parent. Many people do the work of civil society in informal ways, often through church or volunteerism. Um, but civil society also includes the work of nonprofits and structured institutions like a local food bank or animal shelter um, or groups working on, say, land conservation or cleaning up the environment. So the work of civil society, you know, is really doing the hard work of solving difficult social problems. Um, and then sometimes these what I'll call public good issues are solved by a combination of these different sectors working together. Um, for example, I was recently at a conference that was working on the problems of overfishing and ocean health, and there you saw multiple stakeholders from different sectors all coming together. You had people from the for-profit fisheries industry. Uh, there were academics. Um, there were people from the philanthropy world and from nonprofits and government. So in truth, these public good issues can be quite tangled, and they might need all the sectors coming mm -hmm. together uh, to, to address them. Yeah, absolutely. And the... Uh... The fascinating historical piece, you know, what, what was it? The Civic Act of 1913, where um, the 501c3 was created. So we're essentially uh, 110 years or so, you know, into that idea of the 501c3 and foundations and that. Um, so essentially a century. And I, I looked at the most recent numbers that I could find was in 2020 and $471 billion was given under this designation of the 501c3. Yeah, it's a huge sector. 
And so, I mean, half a trillion, essentially, if we want a, a rounding error, but half a trillion dollars in one year was donated. And largely, if you look at the breakdown, um, the, va- uh, the vast majority of that is individuals. It's to religious organizations. It's to hospitals, educational institutions. You know, it's, it's a fascinating breakdown. And so there's a lot of money that Americans give and think about this. I mean, there's, there's a vast um, industry of nonprofits. And so you titled your book innovation for social change. How do you define or, or what, what do you mean by innovation, uh, especially as it relates to this nonprofit sector? So I think about innovation simply, very simply, is just finding new and better ways of doing things. And it can be big or small. So innovation can be really big, like the American Civil Rights Movement. Um, that, that was massive social change. Um, it could be something like uh, there's a great story about how the 911 emergency phone system was created. Um, you know, it didn't always exist. And so it was the uh, worlds of philanthropy and nonprofit and uh, local government uh, coming together to figure that out. That's nationwide. That's kind of a big example. Um, or the type of big things that the X Prize Foundation works on, where there's maybe a national or international scope. But um, importantly, I think innovation can also be quite small and humble, like changing how you take in information. Maybe you change from a paper-based system to an iPad, and now you've saved the extra steps of someone having to manually enter that into a database. And that's maybe pretty small, but you just save time and steps that you can now apply elsewhere. So I think both those kinds of big and small innovations, they're things we want to see in nonprofits and encourage. Um, And why should we care about this? So if you think about it, nonprofits provide some of the greatest gifts to the world and take on some of its hardest problems. We're building civil society. Our work eases hunger, fights injustice, arts programs lift the human spirits. And so many people are counting on our work. So if you think about what it means if we provide mediocre programming to an at-risk young person, there are pretty serious consequences for that. So we really need organizations that empower us to ask courageous questions and innovate and experiment to discover what works. And I know um, a lot of Acton listeners might be a pers- people of faith. And as people of faith, we're really called to be good stewards of our limited resources, mm-hmm. our time, and our talents. We're called to help others. And we hope that our donations are put to good use. Um, so we have this duty to be good stewards of our limited resources, and that's another reason why innovation matters a lot in nonprofits as we're always searching for better ways of doing things. Yeah. And if you think about that $471 billion number for a while and let that really sink in, I mean, the generosity of the American people, um, like you said, that isn't demanded um, and and the creativity that abounds within that is, is really a powerful number and a powerful force. Yeah, it's a special thing. It is. It really is. And in the opening chapters of the book, you highlight a really great you kind of that's the hook how you get us when you when you start the book about a high school in Newark, New Jersey called St. Benedict's. I mean, what what prompted you to use this school or this example as the hook? Yes. Um, so there is this wonderful story of a 100-year-old Catholic prep school in New Jersey. And um, this was in the late 1960s where Newark was experiencing a lot of civil unrest. There was violence, riots, buildings were raised, the National Guard was called in. Um, so in the midst of all this, you saw a lot of Newark businesses closing their doors as well as schools, including this 100-year-old uh, prep school. 
And um, what was interesting, the, the school was run by Benedictine monks. And uh, during this time, a number of them did leave. A lot of people were leaving Newark. And uh, so that some of the monks actually left the school and moved away. Um, but thankfully, a handful of really determined monks decided to stay. They wanted to serve the community. And uh, they knew it wasn't going to be easy. Um, the demographics of the neighborhood had changed quite a bit. Uh, the school lost many of their donors who um, were angry that the school didn't move into the white suburbs with them. Uh, some even said, you know, I'm not going to give you a dime anymore because of what you did. So, so they were dealing with this kind of difficult situation. Uh, but the monks and a core group of teachers stayed, and they intended to radically transform the school. And the results today are, are absolutely incredible. 98% of their students go to college. 82% have completed college or are enrolled and on track to graduate. And these are at-risk youth in a, in a tough neighborhood that they're serving. And so if you compare this to the local demographics where 50% of Newark's families are living in poverty and only 12% of the adult population have a college degree. So the school is pulling off these incredible results. And so then you have to ask, well, what are they doing? And how did the school achieve so much impact? So I don't want to give too much away. Sure, like, sure. Read, read the book, and it, it blew me away. I love the stories, um, but and it's a whole chapter on the school. But uh, without giving too much away, some of the things the staff did, they really embraced what I'll call radical listening. Um, it's, it reminds me a little bit of that show, Undercover Boss. Mm -hmm. So uh, they did these surprise home visits to the parents, visit, you know, knocked on the door, a parent would open the door, and they would come in. Um, and they'd be paying really a close attention to what was going on in the house of the student, what their needs were. Um, they were paying attention to their needs and obstacles, so things like trauma, violence, self-esteem, poverty. They really wanted to understand, you know, what are our students wrestling with and what can we do about it? And uh, as they started designing their programming around this, uh, some interesting, unique things that they did. So they created this really rigorous 11-month school year, and they created a boot camp for new students. And uh, one of the other interesting stories, there, there was a St. Benedict's Prep School alumni who was also a Boy Scout leader. And uh, at one point, he experimented by taking students on this rigorous hike on the Appalachian Trail with this goal of no man left behind. Oh, wow. And it was really hard. You know, these uh, a lot of the young people had never been on a, a one-mile hike, let alone, you know, a rigorous one like that. And it was tough. Um, but they came back so proud and, uh, you know, just full of self-esteem from this experience. And they built brotherhood with each other other that they started to recognize the effect of something like this on the students. So they, they made it an annual requirement. Um, and then they started building those Boy Scout principles into the model of the school, this idea of no man left behind. Mm -hmm. So they would organize the students into uh, small groups. Uh, they have like a daily convocation. You'll hear these chants, like whatever hurts my brother hurts me. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And it's actually now a student-run school. Um, so they really embrace some wild experiments. They challenge the status quo of what a school is supposed to be. And uh, they've been featured on 60 Minutes, a PBS documentary, and they've, they've been mentioned in, in books aside from mine. Um, their story really blew me away. Um, they're small but mighty because they're innovative. And uh, then in the chapters that follow through the rest of the book, I try to, to break that out into more examples, um, you know, so that we can pull those lessons out and apply them at, uh, at our nonprofits. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think when, you, when you're saying... Um, or talking a lot about innovation and the examples you gave the St. Benedict's are fantastic. Yeah, I really do buy the book and, and read that that um, transformation of that school. But when we say innovation, I think sometimes people, you know, conjure in their mind brand new 
or this, they're bringing something whole cloth when, like St. Benedict's, they're just reinventing. They're using good examples from other organizations to bring into their organization. So it doesn't have to be, uh, for the lack of a better term, inspiration, right? Yeah. Like like out of nothing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm a big believer in, in stealing good ideas wherever you see them. So, yeah, yeah it doesn't have to be brand new to the world. Um, and innovation can be very marginal, Um and, and just things we discover through trial and error and often through failing, and that's perfectly okay. Uh, in Chapter 6, though, this is where I, the, the next uh, few questions are going to be really fun. You know, you, you engage the idea of forming the initial vision and idea of a nonprofit is obviously essential. Um, and then you say developing some sort of theory of change um, is important in, in thinking through what your nonprofit is doing. How long do you think this startup stage should last when you're thinking through vision, um, mission, and, and getting up, up off, the, off the ground? What's next in the sequence? Um, in other words, should, should nonprofits perpetually describe themselves as a startup? Is that a good thing? Or you know, is there a proper sequence where one organization should culturally – and I think this comes internally, transition from a startup uh, mentality to, you know, more of a mature or mature mentality. Yeah. Um, I, I love learning about the origin stories of some of these nonprofit ha- powerhouses we've all heard of, like Habitat for Humanity or the Civil Rights Movement, um, Mayo Clinic and Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, what I learned from going back and looking at how they started, um, each of them really had an, an initial startup phase where, where they all started very, very small, very humble, very local. Uh, they were highly experimental. They didn't really quite have their missions figured out. Um, and usually there's like there's either one founder, maybe a small group of founders who what, what they did know is they had a strong sense of the social pro- social problem they wanted to solve mm-hmm. and a deep personal commitment to do something about it. But usually in this early startup phase, they may not be entirely sure about how they're going to solve it. They're, so they're just trying things. And so, you know, a theory of change is really just a hypothesis because we don't really know what how we're going to achieve the change. So a theory of change is just kind of saying, like, if we do A – and then we do B, we think C will happen and that will lead to the outcomes we hope for. So it's just kind of like a logic chain or, or a theory that, uh, you know, we might be wrong. It's, it's our guess at how we're going to achieve our mission. And wh- why should a business have that? Or why should a business fo- or a nonprofit focus on – because it seems theory of change. It seems kind of uh, big and ethereal. What, how does it help? Yeah, I think it, it helps with uh, with focus, you know. Um, so let's think of an example like um, Habitat for Humanity, for example. Um, so they could say, well, our, our desire is just to get people shelter. Um, and so we're just, you know, we're going to make sure people have roofs over their heads. Or it could be a little more complex, like our theory of change is um, not only do we want to help people get shelter, we want them to build it or help build it themselves, have a sense of pride, have a sense of ownership, um, and then all these good things will happen. Because right, those are two completely different mm-hmm. approaches. Um, so you need need to have some clarity, you know, if you're a nonprofit about what is the thing that you're trying to do, because then all of your programming is going to cascade from that. Um, and it, it takes a while to figure that out. So if you think of um, like the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, you know, the story there is really interesting. So really, it just started out with two men who were um, addicts who uh, found each other, had a meaningful conversation with each other, recognized, uh, you know, were able to um, kind of just very much relate to each other and the challenges they were facing. And there was a healing impact from, from them doing that. 
And so they discovered there's power in this model of one alcoholic talking to another. Um, but and they wanted to share that. So they knew a lot of other people were suffering, but they really didn't discover the full model of AA until they went through more trial and error. It would take time and experimentation. Eventually, they, you know, uh, built their 12-step model. And then eventually, they realized things like members should be really should be anonymous. They didn't know that right away. Um, so there's that. I think you're asking about the startup phase. That, to me, is kind of the startup phase for a nonprofit. Like, you, you know there's a problem. You agree on the problem. But not exactly sure of your business model. Um, so there's this kind of journey where they're trying to figure out what is our mission, what is our North Star, what is what is our business model. And for any nonprofit, once you finally identified that, you know, your vision, this this may not change very often. Um, but I think what remains constant, though, is, is a lot of programmatic experimentation uh, using trial and error. And I don't think that ever ends. So to... I'm uh, trying to get to your question. I think in my mind, I see it as two phases. There's kind of that startup phase where you're figuring out your business model. And then there's a forever phase where you're um, kind of embracing what uh, we would call creative destruction, experimentation that never ends. So um, maybe that gets at your question of is is there do you continue with a startup mentality? I, I might call it like a creative destruction mentality that that just continues. Um do you think uh, I know if if you follow the news, I don't know yesterday there was a kind of simultaneously hilarious and sad story about the government I mean it went live on Twitter and everybody was uh, trying to find an eighty million dollar f thirty five I don't know it, it the pilot ejected I think it was over South Carolina, North Carolina, somewhere on the East Coast, he ejected and the pilot or uh, it was on autopilot. And the plane kept going after he – and it's a stealth fighter. And literally they were saying, if you've seen our stealth fighter – yeah, I mean it, it, a little more public-related you know, relations into it. But it was hilarious and obviously they got trolled pretty hard. But I guess what I'm trying to think about is you know, there's a different – you know, having a pilot leading the ship, organizing and going somewhere versus an, an organization that's on autopilot. I understand your creative destruction – mentality. We should always be thinking of iterative ways of growth, that kind of yeah. thing. But do you think there's a, a benefit of finally getting to the place where we're a real organization? Yeah. And, and you, I mean, that obviously iteration is good so that we don't become on autopilot and stagnant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but is, is there a way where growth um, and that in that startup phase, we should move to another you know, sector or another way of, of engaging our audience. Yeah, yeah, I think of it in terms of, uh, yeah, we're probably still in this high-risk startup phase where we don't quite have our mission figured out, you know, like the Alcoholics Anonymous example. Um, but then eventually you're going you're gonna to figure it out and, uh, and then just iterate more on the margins, I mm -hmm. think, but your, your North Star stays the same. Yeah, um, kind of that stability that comes from knowing who you – like yeah. identity, if you will, yeah. knowing who you are and then heading towards that and then allowing people like you you spoke of earlier to fail or to engage. Yeah, in, right? yeah. yeah. and that startup phase, it's hard. There's so many risks. Like, um, you know, usually you don't have donor diversification yet. Maybe mm -hmm. you just have a seed funder and so if you lose that funder – the nonprofit shuts down, or you might just be counting on one key founder who's really passionate about the mission, and if they leave, the whole place folds. So risk, I think, is a huge part of, of that startup phase as well. And once you you know, um, get to a place where the risk, you lower that risk and you have more organizational stability, then I 
think you're starting to shift out of the startup phase at that point. Yeah, yeah. And that that leads to a great, uh, you know, in our modern world, there seems to be kind of an undercurrent of if it can't be counted, it doesn't count. And uh, some would argue this is a kind of a utilitarianism or, you know, there's several ways to get at this um, idea. But how do you meaningfully measure success or metrics, you know, in in a nonprofit endeavor? It's not like we're making iPads, you know, and you're expected to sell a million units a quarter, you know, the the basic business idea. How how do you um, meaningfully measure? Yeah, that's that's I've I've, uh, done a lot of work on on that question, worked with nonprofit teams, and there's they're right to have a high level of frustration about metrics. A lot of times, you know, they just get kind of fed up or exasperated or like, this is something that a donor is imposing on us, but it means nothing to us. It doesn't help us. Um, and uh, I, I recommend this book to a lot of people. It's called The Tyranny of Metrics. It's, oh, yeah. it's uh, about a four-hour read. Um, he uses, he's very cleverly uses HBO's The Wire, like the, the policing and school system and ways that they measure disastrously. These are all cautionary tales of what not to do. Um, I, I recommend to nonprofit teams read that book and be sure to know all the kind of pathologies and things we do not want to repeat when we're designing our own metrics. Um, so then that leaves us with the question of what should be the goal of metrics and evaluation? And, and we know we can't just wink at our donors and say, trust us. There should be some form of evidence that we're, um, you know, having good results. Um, I think ultimately what we're asking is this question of how do we know if what we're doing is working? And um, there's a great story of a nonprofit that I think does this really well. Um, they're uh, focused on at-risk youth, and uh, they do foster care in Austin, Texas. And the nonprofit's called LifeWorks. And uh, they realized at one point they felt they were just kind of self-evaluating their program results. And they, they admitted to themselves, like, we think we're doing okay, but they were dissatisfied with their programming and, and just – intuitively felt maybe they could do better. So they brought their team members together and had a series of brainstorms and discussions, and they asked, well, what is the ultimate problem we're here trying to solve? And um, I think they're kind of grasping around that, you know, let's take a hard look at our mission and our theory of change. Like, are we on track? Is our thinking clear about what we're trying to do? And so in time, they realized that all of their work really should be laser focused to help each young client become self-sufficient. And these are young people dealing with really hard things or in foster care. Um, you know, so first they realized that they had to find clarity on their goals. And then they started asking these hard questions about each of their 17 different programs. Do those programs put us on a path to achieve that goal of helping youth and foster care towards self-sufficiency? So that's kind of laser-focused question. And they realized the answer was not so much. So many of their 17 programs they realized were outdated or serving other purposes or maybe just kind of built up like an oyster bed over time or reflected thinking from many years before. So one of the programs they looked at, for example, was their workforce training programs. And they realized as they looked at it that their programming, uh, you know, it had like classroom-based trainings, interview practice, and on-the-job skills training was actually designed for professional adults rather than for young people wrestling with trauma. So because they were asking these hard questions, they took a hard look and uh, they started looking at mental health workforce training, like for people wrestling with trauma, and they redesigned their programming so that it would be a better fit. And they started looking at the results of that and found it was much better. They were really helping these young people, um, you know, get jobs, stay in jobs, that it, it just worked better. 
Um, so I love that they ask themselves these hard questions, this how do we know if what we're doing is working? Um, and then their uh, their metrics and their data drove action, right? They're redesigning their programming based on it. And so to me, that's the essence of a really good measurement system. It should be a feedback loop that um, helps you improve what you're doing. So I think that's you know a great example of metrics well done. And uh, anyone working at a nonprofit, they know like metrics and evaluation takes significant staff time, and they shouldn't waste our time or just be bureaucratic box checking exercises. They they should help us drive action in some way and improve what we do. And so, do you, in your marketing and, and research and engagement with these, do you see examples of, of other than the one you just used? of people actually taking the time. Because in in business, you know, there's obviously market signals. If you're not selling your product, you're not selling your sandwiches, if you're, you know, you either close or you iterate or, you know, really clear market signals. Sometimes it seems in nonprofit, and I've been involved in some sort of nonprofit management, either volunteering on boards or in organizations for uh, almost 20 years. Um, but I was in for-profit before that. And um, it is sometimes it, the stark difference is is rough, and and so um, some organizations have an R and D budget where they allow a certain kind of failure to test that's built into the budget. Um, it seems like it's a little harder in in nonprofit sector. It's really hard. <laughs> yeah, teams can get so frustrated, justifiably frustrated by it. But I think there's such a payoff for doing it right. Um, you know, it's so. Uh, you know, I really think we, as a nonprofit, are the most important audience for our measurement and evaluation. So I think it can be a bit wrongheaded to just treat it as, oh, this is something we have to do for our donors. Um, you know, it's if it's uh, like the LifeWorks example, if it's actually informing, you know, uh, how you're serving your beneficiaries in a better way, it is worth it, right? Um, but yeah, if it's just a, a, a box checking exercise, then it's just taking us down a bad path and frustrating, every, bogging everyone down. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and maybe that's the leads into you know another question I wanted to ask along this line is you know part three of your book really um, and again I can't over overemphasize the practical nature of it I mean that you're really trying to help people build or think through these organizations and and part three concentrates on building innovation into the actual culture you know making it uh, rooting it in the culture um, what are some main areas in your consulting and research where you actually see organizations fail to build strong cultures of innovative thinking? Like what are what are the costs to the organization if they don't get this right? Um, yeah, what gets in the way of people being innovative? Um, first, I would say there's a sort of fog in the philanthrop philanthropic world. So, um, you know, good intentions, we, we're all very passionate, right? If you work in a nonprofit, you, you care, right? You're passionate about the mission. But good intentions do not automatically mean we have clarity about what we need to do. And there's that um, quote by Stephen Covey, like, we might be climbing up the ladder, but is the ladder leaning against the right wall in the oh, first sure. place? So how do we know? And then there's compassion fatigue. People in nonprofits are often stretched too thin, struggling to prioritize, and, and can't confidently say no to things. Um, there can be this sort of misguided thinking that we don't have time to be strategic. Um, we can have workplace cultures that are way too top down, um, where frontline staff they're the ones who actually, you know, should have the best ideas. They're working most closely with the programming, but that frontline staff may not be empowered to speak up. Um, so creating a workplace culture of innovation, it's, it's not going to happen by accident. It, it has to be intentional. And so then you think about, well, what are all the things that then feed into a workplace culture? Like, how do we assign authority? Who gets to make decisions in the organization and why? Is it top down? Is it bottom up? 
Um, how do we design people's roles, their performance reviews? Uh, how and should, let me oh, stop you there real yeah. quick. Do you, um, out in your consulting and thinking and helping somebody, th- have you found like best practices? I mean, is it is it all relative or is, is it top down that's best or is it bottom? You know, I mean, have you found something that may yes. maybe works better than another? Um, so I... I learned a lot in writing that chapter and kind of taking that question apart of, uh, you know, when does it make sense to be top down and when does it make sense to be bottom up? And, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed thinking about that. So most of the time we want to be as bottom up as we can. I think it's that idea of subsidiarity, right? Mm-hmm. You make your decisions at the, uh, the the lowest level where people are closest to the information. That's usually ideal. Um, and so I started, you know, writing that and sharing examples and stories. Um, and there's a lot of them in that chapter. Uh, but then I realized, you know, there are times, right? Like, uh, take the example of, uh, say, uh, you might be getting a donation from a very controversial donor. They want to give your organization $3 million, uh, but they've been in the news. Who's going to make that? Are you, are you going to ask your intern to make that decision? Right? <laughs> right? Probably not, right? So so then there's kind of a, a, a in the book, there's like five kind of uh, a rubric for how you think through who should get to make a decision and why one of them is risk. So with that example, right, the donor, there's huge risk to the organization's brand if they make a bad decision. Uh, There's also risk of seeing that very important donation walk away. And so um, in that situation, who's closest to the information to make a good decision there? It's probably the CEO and the board because there's a lot, right? Not your intern, right? Mm -hmm. So so where you can, right, you want to encourage bottom-up decision-making, but there are times you know, that are appropriate for a more top-down, um, you know, decision to be made. And uh, one organization that I thought navigated this beautifully um, is Mayo Clinic. Oh, yeah. So uh, Mayo Clinic as, is they're one They're great. Of, yeah. Yeah, they're yeah. famous. They're books written about documentaries. Oh, yeah. Um, so they're one of the best nonprofit hospitals in the world. They're a nonprofit. They're famous for finding innovative solutions for people who are very sick. And the reputation did not happen by accident. So in interviews, team members of Mayo Clinic will say that good patient outcomes are because of their organizational values, and one is the needs of the patient come first, and another value is unsurpassed collaboration. So then their team members are intentionally trained, empowered, and encouraged to put those values into practice. So I'm going to quote now from a Mayo staff member who said, if the employee's choices are either getting back to work on time or taking 10 minutes to get a wheelchair for a patient who seems unsteady, the patient will most likely get the wheelchair. So I think that is a great example of, you know, your your frontline staff are empowered. Um, you know, they're not waiting for the CEO to get permission to go get that wheelchair, right? They're empowered, um, which is great, right? So I think that's a sign of an organization that's kind of got it figured out and are finding that kind of right path about those authority questions of who gets to make decisions and why. And how, how do you think they learn that? How, how is that inculcated in the culture? Um, how does that trickle down? Yeah, so I I think so so the Mercatus Center where I work does something like this as well, um, and it, it comes. We also have organizational values that are kind of similar um, to the Mayo Clinic about, um, and, and so we hire people and incentivize people. So for example, one of our organizational values is challenge culture, um, but done in a humble, respectful way. And so we're all empowered. Like if we see something wrong in the organization, we're all empowered to speak up. And um, during the interview process, right, they're, they're screening for people like that. So if I were being interviewed, they might say, Leah, tell me about a time where you challenged the status quo or you challenged your supervisor. What happened there, right? And that, you know, so there, we're handpicking people who um, 
are courageous and curious and, and exhibit those things. And then we're incentivized, uh, you know, in our annual performance reviews, um, you know, that my peers will review me and get questions. Tell me about a time this year where Leah challenged the status quo. Um, and Mayo does that as well. So we, we have that in common there. So, so, so I mean, I'm going to use a, a buzzword with a lot of baggage, but how do you both create a challenge culture and a safe place? Yeah. Yeah, uh, so uh, oh, I, it'll be tough to give you that in a short answer, but I'll try. Um, so of, we have about five or six different organizational values that we talk about a lot. So challenge is one of them, but um, a couple of the others are humility, respect, and um, so challenge is both given and received, right? right. So we have right. to have a spirit of openness. Like it's not about dunking on people, right? Yeah. It's about yeah. learning from each other in a respectful way. So um yeah, I'm sorry. I forget your question. You're- no, that's good. It's like, how do you have, I mean, because a challenge culture, if you are really to encourage that, that can get um, uh, real sensitive really quickly for, yes. for certain personalities, for certain people younger in the organization, older in the organization. You know what I mean? There, yeah. there's, there's more institutional dynamics at play when you say challenge culture, depending on where you sit Yes. Yeah. And and the supervisor always kind of has a power position. So they have to model it. And so we we talk about that in training sessions. So, you know, uh, provide examples of language. Like as a supervisor, you can word things like, hey, I want to put this idea out here for the team, but I want you guys to challenge it. It's just far better if we challenge it here rather than it crash and burn with our audiences, you know? So Well, well, tell your Pixar. Tell your that little story about Pixar and how they. Oh, yeah. Um, That's a great, perfect story. Uh, Yeah. So, um, I love the story of uh, Pixar took a lot of inspiration from them. So they use a tool called design thinking. Um, but how I learned about this was uh, so, so they have a, a saying there. It's kind of shocking, but they, you know, they're fantastic. They make amazing movies, right? They won all sorts of Academy Awards. They did Toy Story. So how do they turn out consistently great movies? And so they talk about how they give brutal feedback to each other. And they have this assumption early on. Uh, an executive actually said this word for word. Like, we assume early on that all of our movies suck. And our job as a team yeah. is to get them from suck to unsuck. <laughs> and I, I kind of like that because it, it's going to take a safe culture, uh, right, for the team to come together and ask you know, kind of look critically at their at their movies and and projects and storyboards to get it to that place. So you got to have trust with each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, I absolutely, I, I try to replicate the same thing when I work with our nonprofit teams. You have to, you're going to ask tough love questions, but it's all to make our programming better. And uh, you have to have trust to do that. Man, if you can make that happen in a nonprofit, that that's life changing for yes. culture. Yes, that's great. Yeah, and people are empowered and fired up. And I've seen it. I've seen that in teams where uh, uh, probably one of the uh, I feel like biggest wins I've had with the nonprofit team is where I felt like they all these things I was trying to teach them and show them with strategy, they just started owning it and taking it as their own. So I don't even have to be there anymore. And again, that's where some of that natural innovation can happen. It, I that's mean, that, the it, best. It's tough, but it, I mean, yeah, okay. Yes. I, I like that idea. That's, <laughs> that's really great. Um, now I'm going to, I'm going to ask somewhat of a challenging question or an interesting, you know, cultural question. Um, there's been a few studies and organizations and, and researchers have thought about this term innovation as a whole. Now, you know, you're writing about nonprofits, you're writing, you know, but the, just the term itself, innovation, and they've done an Ngram study and the study, how, how often it's used at Google, in Google searches and where it is. And uh, they found a disproportionate number of the, the more we use the term culturally, um, 
the, the, the term innovation in our writing, in books, it's plastered on, I would probably say to bet 50% of the colleges or universities have a center for innovation. You know, it, the more we talk about it, that it, it is actually demonstrably true that the less innovation has, is actually going on in the real world. So in other words, uh, the more we use the term in marketing materials, naming of buildings, et cetera, the less we point to it. Um, w- what do you think of this critique? Yeah, I, I think if, if a leader of an, or an organization is just using innovation as an empty buzzword or just hype, then, uh, you know, if they're making pronouncements with no actual innovation happening, then that's very unhelpful. Um, it made me think of this saying I heard somewhere that uh, everyone wants to change the world, but no one wants to help mom do the dishes. Yeah, that's great. I yeah. like that because I, when I hear that, it just makes me think of ego. Um, so maybe that's related to those CEOs. Like if they're just off kind of making glamorous pronouncements and throwing that word around, um, you know, throwing the word innovation around, but not actually doing the hard work of innovation, then that's destructive. Um, you know, and you think of to build an innovative workplace like the Mayo Clinic example, like that is intentional hard work on the leader's part to build an organization like that, a culture that encourages people, you know, to come forward with their ideas where good leaders just get out of the way, right, and encourage and empower frontline staff mm-hmm. to innovate. Um, and, you know, I just I think of innovation simply we're finding new and better ways of doing things, big or small. And I think that requires humility because we're seeking the truth. Um, You know, we're just even if we're finding out that the truth is uncomfortable or or the results that maybe we weren't hoping for. um, I think innovation is all about, you know, seeking to discover what works and what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And we may not like the answer. Um, And this requires hard work, courage, a spirit of generosity, some intellectual humility and a willingness to fail and be wrong. So, yeah, it kind of strikes me the wrong way if, if there are a lot of people out there just kind of throwing that word around casually without kind of putting the elbow grease in to really do it, that's a problem. Yeah. And it, what I like about some of these organizations that are trying to combat this idea or overuse or overhype of um, the term innovation, the, the one organization has actually started called The Maintainers. And they're, they're not anti-innovation. They're not anti-entrepreneurship. They're, not, they're, they're literally not. They're pro-business. They think it's, there's good. But what they think about it is like the more we talk about innovation, sometimes it clouds kind of the maintenance that needs to happen in any good organization, like solid uh, human resources. Like you said, building a culture of trust in, in the way you described earlier. Um, development and communications. Are we, you know, are we using hype to bring donors in, but then not really doing programs that model that or or are just very surface oriented? And so I appreciate some of that. Um, do, do you find in your work when people encounter the term innovation in nonprofits, um, that it's generally well received, like they understand what you mean. Do you, do you find like when you're consulting? I, I think and- so. There are some other words that throw people off. Um, you know, like if I if I start using a lot of language from the for-profit world and I don't kind of self-monitor there, oh, I can yeah. really, you know, because uh, the people's responses will be, we're not the for-profit sector. Why? Or if you simply word like strategy, it's it can be yeah. like throwing a grenade in the room. That means different things to different people. So um, so those, those words, I haven't seen the response quite like that to innovation yet, but the more people are just using it as hype, I think it's just a matter of time before we start getting challenges on that. Well, Leah, this is, I mean, this has been fantastic. And I, uh, seriously, they, 
if you're listening to this and you are interested or volunteering with nonprofits, you need uh, to pick up this book. Um, I want to end with just this one question. You know, given the current state of affairs in our world, you know, politically, and, and uh, you, we talked earlier about public good and some of the debates around that topic or civic society, what, what are good institutions? What social sectors do you think right now are ripe for innovation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's a really interesting meta question. Um, and, I, you know, my mind's kind of racing through. There's these different sectors in philanthropy. There's, you know, education, healthcare, mm -hmm. the arts. Uh, there's people doing policy advocacy, human services. Um, and in each of these sectors, there's really passionate people working hard to discover better ways of doing things. Um, but I, I do see, because I'm in the education sector, I, I see so much change happening there. I mean, you think of how virtual learning and online education is mm, oh kind yeah. of radically transforming. We're evolving very rapidly there. Um, AI is so new and rapidly evolving. Uh, I think we don't even understand yet how that's going to transform what we Very do. Very true, yeah. Um, but if I had to put my money on just one area that I think is right for innovation, I, I, I don't know if I'll word this very, very well, but um, it's what in economists might call institutional complexity. Mm. And in, what I mean by that is how so far, a lot of us are very siloed in how we approach social problems or, or any problem, right? Like, well, I'm going to approach this through my nonprofit lens, or I'm going to approach this over here through my for-profit lens. Uh, but as I researched the book, I, I've, I was learning a lot and noticing how there's all this complexity. So you take an organization like Goodwill Industries. Goodwill Industries is kind of this hybrid. They're, they're, they have a, a nonprofit aspect of what they do. They do workforce development. They get often like local grants. So there's a government angle, right? They might be getting a grant from their city or state to do this workforce training that they're carrying out uh, in a nonprofit way. Um, and then they have a for-profit aspect of what they do. I think they're selling clothing that then, you know, they're for a profit. So um, and Cleveland Clinic, similar, right? They, they are getting uh, federal grants. They run as a nonprofit hospital, but then they will spin off, uh, you know, uh, uh, when they have patents, they will spin that off in a for-profit way. So that it's becoming kind of messy, but I think maybe that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just there's this reality. So I think our artificial legal structure shouldn't keep hold us back um, from exploring who we partner with, um, you know, to, to solve something big. Uh, an example of that, I was recently at a conference focused on ocean health and the problems of overfishing. And at this conference, I saw all those stakeholders. It's a hard, oh, yeah. very wow. complex problem. Um, and there were stakeholders. I was glad to see there were stakeholders there. Uh, both the for-profit fisheries were there. There were academics. There were people from philanthropy and government. And I think that's what it's going to take, right? So when you ask, you know, what's what's right for change or, or where am I expectant? I, I think we're going to see a lot more. I suspect we're going to see a lot more of that sort of entangled, multi-stakeholder approaches where our, you know, siloed definition of ourselves and our four walls might matter less and less. Mm -hmm. So do you think um, asking or, or less navel gazing or, or asking people that we comfortably know the answers yes. that they're going to, you know, uh, maybe in the collegiate level, we, you know, the say um, in, more interdisciplinary, having more people from yeah. across discipline. Cross sector. Yeah. yeah. I think there's some ex there's something exciting that's happening there. And I think we're going to see more of. Um, and, and, you know, just think of how I work with my own nonprofit teams, you know, just always really in encouraging our teams to not think in a siloed way about whatever it is where the team is trying to accomplish. And um, I think the more we look to uh, 
complex partnerships, the more effective we might be. Mm-hmm. Well, Leah, this book was really needed, and I, I appreciate you for all the research and time you put into writing it. Uh, we'll link in the show notes to your social media, to your website, to uh, obviously where they can find the book. Um, but again, thank you for uh, writing this and spending time with us today. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.